Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week we're focusing on the American presidential election and fears about the integrity of the vote. Dictators and corrupt regimes have rigged elections and disputed the results in other places. But could that really happen in the United States? If you want to really drive him crazy, you say 12 more years. That was Donald Trump on the first day of the Republican National Convention this week. We caught them doing some really bad things in 2016. Let's see what happens. We have to be very careful because they're trying it again with this whole 80 million mail-in ballots that they're working on. For months, the U.S. president has claimed that the Democrats plan to steal the election. But the Democrats are also crying foul. They fear that Mr. Trump might try to rig the presidential election by making it much harder to vote by mail or by intimidating voters. He suggested sending local law enforcement to guard polling places. And perhaps the biggest fear is that the president will simply refuse to accept the results of the vote. Is the president saying if he doesn't win this election that he will not accept the results unless he wins. The president has always said he'll see what happens um, and make a determination in the aftermath. It's the same thing he said uh, last November. He wants a free election, a fair election. And he wants- During the Democratic convention last week, Sarah Cooper, who's become famous for her parodies of Donald Trump, issued a warning about the president's behavior. Let me put this in my own words. I've heard Donald Trump say some pretty unhinged things. But nothing is more dangerous to our democracy than his attacks on mail-in voting during a pandemic. These accusations and counter-accusations are, of course, troubling. I've seen disputed elections lead to violence and even revolution in Asia, Africa and Europe. In 1986, as I was just beginning my career as a BBC producer, the big story we were all following from London was the People Power Revolution in the Philippines. It was sparked by President Ferdinand Marcos's effort to rig the election and hold on to his 20-year rule. The standoff between rebellious military elements and Marcos loyalists began Saturday. As the yellow ribbon became the symbol of the uprising against Marcos. General Fidel Ramos, leading the reformists, had decided on mutiny against President Marcos. I call upon now everyone who is... Uh, Uh, imbued with a sense of uh, justice and uh, respect for the law to disobey the orders given to them. Because the temptation to interfere with elections is so widespread, the international observation and monitoring of elections has become a kind of mini-industry. And no wonder, because dictators keep trying to rig them. In Belarus, thousands have taken part in mass demonstrations against the government of President Alexander Lukashenko, following apparently well-founded accusations that he's rigged election results to stay in office after nearly three decades in power. Belarus today is an example of the kind of chaos and uncertainty that can be unleashed if one side refuses to play by the rules. So what are the real threats for the United States? To separate fact from fiction and to look ahead at what might happen if there's a disputed election, I'm joined by two experts. Judith Kelly has studied elections and written a book about international election observation. She's dean of the Sanford School of Public Policy 
at Duke University in North Carolina. And also Edward Luce, who comments on US politics for the FT from Washington. I started by asking Ed to outline the various accusations about rigged elections that are currently flying about. Well, Trump has now for weeks, if not months, been saying, consistently saying that this will be a rigged election. Even though he won the Electoral College in 2016, he still claimed that there were millions of fake voters in in the form of illegal immigrants. He even set up a commission to study that, which disbanded quietly, having found no evidence. So he's been saying for months that 2020 will be rigged. And um, some of the allegations, such as the US Postal Service and mail-in balloting in general, are fraudulent have been in turn used by the Democrats to suggest that Trump is trying to rig the election. There is, of course, a pattern there, psychologically, with the president to project his own behavior. So when he says it's going to be rigged, I think some people quite reasonably take it as a signal that that's what he's planning to do. But there is no real common ground between these two positions. Each side thinks the other is going to rig it. And the Democrats, to be specific, think that he's trying to, in the midst of the coronavirus, make it essentially impossible to vote by mail, therefore suppressing their vote. Yes, um, to disable the US Postal Service, to suppress the vote essentially by making absentee voting very difficult. And why do the Democrats think that would hurt them most? There isn't actually any evidence to show in the past that more um, Democrats than Republicans vote absentee. In fact, there's slightly more evidence to show uh, Republicans do because so many military veterans vote absentee. This time round, though, the estimates are that at least half of the electorate are going to vote absentee as opposed to somewhere between a fifth and a quarter. And that in a high turnout election, or at least a potentially high turnout election, which would benefit the Democrats, this is going to suppress the vote in general, therefore harm the Democrats in particular. Now, Udip, you look at um, comparative elections and and this whole question of keeping elections clean and what election observers around the world look for in elections. If international observers were coming to look at the US election, and some will, what issues do you think they would be focusing on and how concerned would they be by this run-up? You know, your question is very interesting because normally when international election observers come to a country where there might be some suspicion that things are not going to go smoothly, it's usually because there's a strong man who is planning indeed to rig the election, but planning to claim that the election was not rigged, right? And so here we sort of standing things on their head in that Trump is claiming that it is going to be rigged. And what he is, of course, naturally really doing is not so much rigging the election, which is a very difficult thing to do, which we'll get to later, but is to undermine the confidence in the election. In terms of international observers, they have been coming, working all over the world since the late 80s. They usually do their work in three phases. There's a pre-electoral assessment. Then there's the work on the uh, election day. And then there's a post-electoral phase. And usually in the pre-election period, you know, they're looking at the legal system, the media system. Uh, They're looking at the electoral administration, voter rights, candidate registration, uh, the voting technologies, how the election campaign is run, etc., including access for election observers. And then on the day of the election, they look at voter intimidation, disenfranchisement, wait times, travel times, the secrecy of the ballot, etc. And then after the election, they are concerned with the counting 
uh, the tabulation of the vote, and if there are judicial challenges, how those are resolved. And you pointed out that in the past, there have actually been, we think of sort of Western countries sending observers to to the outside world, to, to Africa or Asia or wherever, but there have been international observers looking at US elections. They've reported, but without much fanfare. Do you think potentially they could play more of a role this time around because of all these accusations that are flying around? You're right. The Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE, is the primary organization that's been working in the United States. They started coming in 2002 after the the 2000 election debacle. And uh, they've been coming regularly to every election. But as you say, not necessarily a lot of fanfare. And I think that's partly because the media doesn't pay a lot of attention to uh, the observers. It's interesting because they have, again, been invited to come. Uh, The Department of State is the body that invites them. And they sent a needs assessment mission early this summer. And their list of things that they said merited attention was quite comprehensive. They said that the areas of the election that merited more attention in the United States was voter rights, registration identification, the security of election technologies, a legal framework and implementation of alternative voting methods. And that's what we're talking now about, the, the, mail, the mail-in vote and the framework for that, conduct of the campaign. And so they had a long list that led them to then go on and recommend that international observers attend the election. And they recommended 100 long-term observers and 400 short-term observers. You said earlier that you actually think whatever the president's saying, it would be very hard to rig the election Why do you think that is? The United States has, for better or worse, an incredibly decentralized electoral system. So we we administer the election through somewhere between 8,000 and 10,000 precincts all over the nation. And as Ed pointed out, in the last election already, uh, mail-in ballots accounted for about a quarter of the vote. Uh, That's expected to really go up. This, uh, this election. And so we're really talking about votes coming in in a very, very decentralized manner. And so it's very difficult to do a substantial intervention that's going to have a meaningful impact in terms of outcome across these very disparate jurisdictions. It doesn't mean you can't do something that will delay the tallying and and really slow us up after the election, that doesn't take necessarily much, but that's different from actually stealing the election. Yeah. And then we referred to earlier this question of the postal service. Is there a substantial risk that it won't be able to actually cope with all these mail-in ballots? Yes. And indeed, the, the postmaster general has said, he's written to the states and said that we cannot guarantee the timely delivery of um, mail ballots, um, it's sent within a week of polling day. Many state laws say, look, as long as there's a postmark up to and including polling day, then that ballot should be considered legitimate. But other states are saying if it hasn't arrived by polling day, then it can be thrown out. And certainly there's enough ambiguity, I guess, there across a sufficient number of swing states for a determined team of lawyers to cast out ballots that have arrived late. And the Postal Service is saying very directly, lots of them will arrive late unless they're sent very early. Um, As uh, Judith said, there are thousands of precincts. You can't rig 
an election with that many number of precincts in a decentralized country. But in the swing states that, you know, ultimately will decide who wins the electoral college, in a situation where there are not enough volunteers, partly because of the pandemic, to count through um, the ballots in a timely manner, then you can have the person who is ahead in polling on the day of the physical votes claiming victory. And that's what we've seen happen in elections in the last few years. And so whether, you know, you call that rigging or changing the result through through very clever public relations and legal intervention, I don't know which, but you can you can imagine this election result being changed. If I may, uh, Gideon, to jump in, you know, and say that uh, the letter that the Postmaster General sent is is a fairly standard letter reminding everybody to vote as early as they can and working together with the electoral authorities around the country. We're actually pretty good at mail-in voting. And I, I personally think that the the Democrats have made a tactical error in how they've responded to these accusations because what Trump is trying to do is undermine the confidence in the election and the Democrats have played right into that. I think rather they should have said, no, we know how to do mail-in voting. This is all standard. The ballots will be delivered. This is a small fraction of what the U.S. Mail Service does in any given week, and we're totally capable of doing it. We have barcodes that can be tracked. We have systems for matching signatures. And you know, in the last election in 2018, just barely over 1% of all the over 30 million votes that were cast by a mail were rejected, and only about a quarter of those were rejected because they were late. And the accusations that Trump has made about, well, somebody could cast their mail ballot and then they show up and and vote as well. We have ways of tracking that. In the last election, you know, that was a tiny, tiny number of people who did that and we catch it. So, in fact, as you're saying, the, the, the Democrats, by saying that Trump is going to rig it, have made be inadvertently contributed to this general sense of uncertainty that we're heading inevitably into a disputed election in which there's a sort of he said, she said atmosphere and people believe who they want to believe. I think so. Yeah. So, Ed, I mean, how concerned are you that, in fact, we're going to end up with not a clear result on the night and with this being settled in the courts against an atmosphere of political hysteria that uh, Trump is very expert at stirring up? I think if it's close... Um, and particularly close in, you know, the the key swing states where there is split governance, where there's a Democratic governor, um, but a Republican legislature, uh, namely Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, and Michigan. These are the key swing states, or at least they were last time. Then you can very plausibly get disputes uh, in many precincts and counties over the results, particularly over the counting of mailed-in ballots, And then the situation where you have the legislature in that state sending in one set of um, returns to Washington and the governor sending in another. And then, of course, you know, it it goes to the courts. So I don't find that scenario to be implausible. I agree um, with Judith's point that Democrats might have tactically played into Trump's hands here. But on the other hand, ignoring a president who consistently says this election will be rigged, mail-in ballots are fraudulent by definition, and that I'm not certain yet whether we're even going to hold the election on that date, even though it's not his, in his power to change the date. I think it's very, very hard to ignore a bad actor who's 
proclaiming his intentions. It does pose a difficult problem for Democrats. How do you respond to this? Make no mistake about what is at stake here. I mean, as you say, Ed, somebody who has suggested delaying the election, suggesting potentially extending his uh, time in office beyond the constitutionally allowed period of time, somebody who has reached out to foreign powers to exert influence in the election. These are fundamental assaults on our democracy. We cannot just say nothing. So it it is a difficult position for Democrats to be put in. So, Ed, let's think forward a bit, and, and you did as well. Um, let's say some of the scenarios you suggest play out. It goes to the courts. One disquieting thing is that in the Bush-Gore election, the Supreme Court split on entirely partisan lines. And Yes. Do you think it's possible that that could happen again, Ed? It, it's certainly possible. I mean, you know, a lot of people have um, invested some hope in John Roberts being more of an institutionalist than a partisan because of some of his rulings on non-discrimination, gay marriage, on uh, upholding Obamacare. He's clearly risen above his own his own personal views to defend the Supreme Court's legitimacy by voting with the uh, the four liberal justices. And the hope is that in this scenario, he would do the same thing. On the other hand, if you look at his record in terms of Voting Rights Act, stripping it of, of any agency, and on other voter suppression issues where they've come before the court, he generally sides with the Conservatives. So I'm, I'm not entirely sure the faith in John Roberts is, is well-placed. I guess the question is, would it go to the Supreme Court or would this be something that would be resolved as the Constitution imagines it being resolved, whereby the president of the Senate, who is the vice president, Mike Pence, in other words, receives the separate returns from these disputed states and he decides what to do with them and then puts it to a vote in the Senate. It might not even need to go to the courts in this dark scenario that we're exploring. Goodness, I have no idea about that wrinkle. I mean, you did. What scenarios are you looking at? Well, I mean, uh, again, going back to uh, international election observers, et cetera, you know, all candidates have a right to contest results in, in court. And that's part of what uh, observers would you know, pay attention to. You know, in 2016, both the DNC and, 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 and Trump's campaign were in court all the way up to Election Day regarding charges of voter intimidation and ballot access. Uh, in the last election, we actually had a voter a mail-in ballot fraud issue right here in my state of North Carolina that ended up going to the court. And I thought that was a very positive sign that we ended up having actually the election in that ninth district rerun. Again, the system is working. But I think that ultimately, if he loses, I think at the end of the day, it'll be about the stance of the Republican Party. It'll be about what the senators and the congressmen who are members of the Republican Party decide that they want to support. Do they decide to support him at that point or do they say enough is enough and cut their losses? Even those who were not willing to impeach will be, I think, willing to accept the results of a popular election. And I'm hoping that's what's, what's going to happen because at the end of the day, our democracy doesn't really rest on an exhaustive set of firm rules. We think it did, but it turns out it doesn't. There are actually a lot of norms that we rely on in our democracy and so I think what happens after the election will be depend on how the losing party chooses to, to uphold those norms. 
And democracy is about norms and expectations. And I think that's why what Trump is doing right now in undermining the trust in the elections is so, so very dangerous. And Ed, I mean, looking at the modern Republican Party, do you think they would uh, do the decent thing? Not um, necessarily if Trump lost the popular vote and plausibly is seen to have lost the Electoral College um, and that there are overt efforts to stop vote counting in swing states where it's clear the majority of the votes not counted are Democratic, then, you know, then Judith's uh, scenario comes into play. Does Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate majority leader, cut his ties to Trump? I mean, I agree that that's what would need to happen to avert a constitutional crisis. I have to say I'm very skeptical, given the stances of most Republican leaders across the country, that they would actually have the courage to do that um, in that situation, which would be an acutely heated, polarized, and menacing situation. Uh, If they haven't had the courage in much cooler ones, I would be pretty astonished to see them display that virtue in one as contested and dangerous as this. Well, we've considered some pretty dark scenarios, but let's finish with the darkest of the lot. I mean, which is the idea that you know, the processes work, that Trump clearly is a judge to have lost, but but he himself refuses to accept it and rallies whoever he can in the Republican Party behind him and just refuses to leave the White House, in which case people are talking about the military intervening. Is is that even plausible, uh, Yudin? I don't think so. You know, I've been asking myself, what really is his end game? What is he hoping to accomplish by undermining confidence in the elections like this? I think at the end of the day, Trump cares about the narrative around his popularity. And he wants to make sure that regardless of what happens in this election, he personally can tell a story that preserves a narrative that he won. He, he cares about his reputation. U.S. elections are the biggest popularity contest on the planet. He cares about popularity contests and he wants to at least continue to be king of whatever shrinking domain he might have at that point and be able to tell his story and come out at least in his own universe as a victorious. He could always say, you know what, it was all cheating, but I'll step down. But, you know, I really won. Ed, that's a relatively reassuring uh, thing. Do you think that in the end, Trump wouldn't push it, the military wouldn't push it, and that we'll get to the other side of this? This is, of course, all assuming that Trump loses, which he may not, but let's go with this scenario for the moment. I don't think you'd need the military. I mean, I think if it was clear legally he was the loser um, and he refused to be evicted, um, then um, the Capitol Hill police could arrest him um, or at least evict him. Um, In that scenario, there would be a debate about whether Biden should offer him a pardon as an inducement to leave, whether a presidential pardon could actually cover some of the charges and investigations against him in the Southern District of New York is a whole nother question. I don't think a president can preclude those. But if Trump's clearly lost, and you know the best efforts of Bill Barr as Attorney General can do nothing to change that, then it would turn more into the comic bit of the tragic comedy and less the tragic bit. Yeah. And Judith, last question for you. Can you quite believe, uh, as somebody who's followed elections all over the world, that we're having this kind of discussion about the United States? It's pretty unfathomable. The United States has been in the forefront of promoting democracy around the world. The Carter Center, the National Democratic Institute, the International Republican Institute, agencies that are funded, the latter two, by the U.S. 
Congress have been spending decades going around observing elections around the world, promoting democracy, and calling out precisely these types of behaviors, calling out uh, strongmen who were trying to stay in office longer than they should, calling out the type of influence over the media that we've been seeing Trump trying to really belittle the media as a, as a tactic, etc. It's pretty difficult for me to believe that this is, is happening. I have to pinch myself, honestly. It was a... Uh, a long time coming that I myself have had any kind of voting rights because I was a, a Dane living in the United States. And so I wasn't a resident, couldn't vote in Denmark. I wasn't a citizen, couldn't vote in the United States. And four years ago, I became a U.S. citizen. I went for the very first time to cast my own ballot. And I, I did early voting. And it was very difficult for me to believe that that early ballot actually was contested. We had a prop in our district uh, around early voting ballots. And so it's been a little bit surreal for me, uh, this experience now and seeing what's going on. Um, and uh, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on that, Ed, but I, I, I keep wanting to pinch myself. Ed, what do you think? Surreal or are you getting used to this by now? I'm beginning to acclimatize. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a clear result one way or the other would make this discussion academic. What we're talking about is where it's close and contestable. And I don't think it would be like 2000, you know, where Gore says, all right, fair enough. You're an honorable man. You, you take the job. You know, I, I, I don't want to drag the republic down. The, the Al Gore of today, Joe Biden, would not be allowed to do that. OK, well, on that uh, equivocal note, we'll have to leave it there. But mm -hmm. um, you've certainly given everybody plenty of food for thought. So Judith Kelly and Edward Luce, thank you both very much for joining me. All right. And everybody go vote. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Edward Luce and to Judith Kelly for joining me. And please listen again next week. You can find us in all the usual podcast apps. Mm -hmm.